We're going to be reading from Ephesians 1, 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're beginning a new sermon series and we're looking at the book of Ephesians. And this series will last us all the way through Easter. And there's a reason why we're spending so much time looking at the book of Ephesians. It's because if you were here over the past couple of Sundays, you'll remember that our vision as a church this year is growing in Christ as a church for the city. What does it mean for us to be a church that's not just changing, but growing? growing in maturity. And so there's really no better place in all the Bible to look than the book of Ephesians because Ephesians says, if you're growing in Christ, you are simultaneously and inevitably growing as a church. Or if you're growing as a church, you can't help but be growing in your identity in Christ. And so this book, as we kind of march through it verse by verse, is going to help us understand what it means for our church family to live into our vision this year. Now, the passage you just heard read, actually not just till verse 10, but all the way from verse 3 to verse 14 of Ephesians 1, it's one long sentence in Greek, 202 words. It is what we call a run-on sentence, and it is a glorious sentence. In fact, as a preacher... It's really a challenge to preach on Ephesians chapter 1. That's why we're actually going to have two sermons looking at this one sentence. And the reason it's a challenge is because this passage is so rich. It's so dense. Some years ago, I was in Nepal, and my brother and I, while there, had a chance to do some hiking in the Himalaya Mountains. And while there, while we were doing our hike, I experienced something that I'd never experienced before. It was this, sheer, overwhelming beauty. I mean, you get to a spot as you're hiking, you cross a certain altitude, and every single place you look is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Just stunning beauty in every direction. Ephesians chapter 1 is the Himalayas of the New Testament. This sentence, this paragraph, this part of the Bible is packed with richness. 
stunning, overwhelming beauty in every direction, every phrase, every word. And you might say, the summit of that beauty is verse 3. Paul says, verse 3, praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, Paul says, if you're a Christian, you have it. And what I want to do today is just ask this passage, every spiritual blessing is yours if you're a Christian? Our questions today are, what are those spiritual blessings? How do you get them? And if you get them, how can they change your life? So spiritual blessings, what are they? How do you get them? And if you have them, how can it change your life? So let's look. First, what are these spiritual blessings that Paul's talking about? Now, at one level, it's actually impossible to be comprehensive. Spiritual blessings are any kind of good that comes into your life as a result of following Jesus. And so there's no comprehensive list. And yet, in our passage, Paul mentions three of them. And you might say these are some of the most foundational or most key blessings, or sometimes people call them benefits, that come into the lives of the followers of Jesus. Let me briefly show you what they are. Verses four through six, one blessing, Paul says, is your adoption. Verses seven through eight, Paul says, redemption. And verses nine and 10, reconciliation. Now we're gonna go through those in just a minute, but before we do, we actually have to pull back and understand a little bit more about what Paul's saying. Because he says, again, a Christian is someone who has every spiritual blessing in Christ, but notice he says, you have them in the heavenly realms. And you say, what's that about? I mean, I live in London. London's great, but it's not the heavenly realms. So when Paul says you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, what's he talking about? And more than that, if you look at the verse carefully, what does Paul say? He has blessed us. Past tense. You already have these things. So if you put all that together, it's a little confusing. Paul says, you already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. What's he talking about? Here's the key. In the New Testament, that phrase heavenly realms, it's not just a place. It's a person that you can be with. In the New Testament, that phrase heavenly realms is not just a place you go. It's a person you can be with. So Paul, in another place, puts it like this, Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hear what Paul's saying. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. And Paul says, if you're a Christian here today, that's where you are too. Spiritually, you are raised with Christ. Your life, he says, is hidden in Jesus so that where he is, you are. And you are where he is. That is, he lives in you. And so the heavenly realms are not just a place that Christians go in their future. It's an experience that Christians have in the present. Because right now at this moment, if you're a Christian, you are in and with Jesus. You're with him. 
So when Paul says we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, here's what he's basically saying. You'll have all these blessings fully in the future, but not only in the future. They're spilling into your present. The future is actually breaking into your present. And so all of these things that Paul's about to describe in Ephesians, Paul says, yes, you'll have them fully in the future, but you can experience them truly, even if not totally completely right now. So what are they? Let's look quickly. I'm not going to be super, uh, I can't spend a ton of time on each of them, but let's move through them. Adoption, redemption, reconciliation. So first, verses four through six, Paul talks about adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Some of you said, wait, did he just say predestined? Don't worry, that's next week. We'll talk about predestination next Sunday, promise you. Today, we're talking about adoption. And here's what Paul, (laughs) adoption. John Owen said, this is the fountain privilege. He was a pastor in the 17th century. He said, this is the privilege for the Christian from which all the other privileges flow. Because to be adopted, think about it, you get a new status. If you were poor and you were adopted by people who were wealthy, instantly you become rich. If you didn't have land and you were adopted by someone who had land, you had land. Instantaneously, you receive all the things that the family that's adopted you into has. And Paul says, if you're, if you're adopted, you have, a new, you have a new identity in Jesus. Not only a new identity or status, Paul would say in adoption, you have access. You know, if you ever see a child running to their parent, it doesn't matter how busy that parent is. That parent might work for parliament and it might be very hard for anyone else to schedule a meeting with them, but their child can just run right in. Access. And if you're a son or a daughter of God, Paul's saying you have access to him. There's no hoops to jump through. It's not a performance. The doors are open. What else can we say about adoption? It's a symbol of love. Many of you come from really broken families and some of you have really tough relationships with your dads. And even as I talk about adoption, I know that it's hard for us to imagine a God who is a father who loves us. But can't we at least acknowledge that even broken relationships with our dads remind us that dad should be loving. They should be sacrificial. They should be putting the good of their children ahead of themselves. Paul says that instinct for fatherly love, it's because it points to this one, that you've been adopted and loved by God eternally. You could also think about correction. A loving father will correct or discipline their children. And Hebrews says that that's what God our father does for us. We talked about it a few weeks ago, but sometimes the language of the Bible is pruning. That even as hard and difficult things come into our life, they're so used by God to help shape us into a people of love that look like Jesus. Now, friends, I could go on and on, but do you hear Paul Paul saying, if you're a Christian, you will experience fully in the future and you can begin experiencing right now in the present the fact that you have a family that God is your father, you have access and identity, you are loved and you are safe forever. Nothing can be taken, nothing can ever come into your life to take that away. Adoption. Second benefit, second blessing that Paul talks about is verse seven and eight, redemption. And specifically, redemption in his blood 
the forgiveness of sin. Now, redemption is a word or it's an image really that's used throughout the Bible. And here's what it symbolizes. A person who has been in bondage, who's now being liberated or freed through payment or sacrifice. So someone or something is in bondage and the only way to release that someone or something from bondage is through costly sacrifice. And Paul says, you were in bondage. To what? Sin. You were in bondage to sin. And in the gospel, you now have redemption. Now, some of you, as I say that, you think, wait a second. I mean, come on. I like Jesus. I like him as a teacher. That's great. But in bondage to sin? I'm a free person. I'm not in bondage to sin. I'm not in prison to my selfishness. Well, think about it this way. According to the Bible, the essence of sin, sort of sin fundamentally, is self-love. Sin is not just bad behavior. It's a posture of your heart that says to God, I'm in charge. I'm gonna do it my way. And so sin ultimately is self-centeredness or self-absorption. It's thinking of oneself as the center of the universe and living like everything revolves around us. And actually, can I just gently say to you that those of us who don't actually think we're stuck in our selfishness are probably the most stuck among us. Think about it this way. Do you ever find yourself doing things that you don't want to do? Things that you know you ought not to do. And yet, even though you don't want to do them, even though you feel like you shouldn't do them, you keep doing them. And you feel powerless to change, like powerless to stop. Or let me ask the question a different way. Do you ever find yourself unable to consistently do things that you know you should do and want to do? that will help you grow as a person in godliness or grow in character and virtue. And yet, even though you say, I wanna be this kind of person, you just can't keep doing those things. Why is that? (laughs) Because the Bible says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. That we're actually not nearly as free as we would like to be or as we think we are. We are in prison to our own selfishness and self-absorption. And you know what the good news of the gospel is? Redemption. That God and Jesus Christ has done something, we'll talk about this more in a second, to free you from the guilt of sin, the debt hanging over you, and ultimately one day from the very presence and power of sin. You see, real freedom would be wanting the best thing and always doing the best thing. That would be real freedom. And Paul says that's redemption, that's coming. So adoption, redemption, quickly, third one, reconciliation. What is that? Verses nine and 10. Look at verse 10. Paul says, God's purpose is being accomplished for what end? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's reconciliation. It's not hard to look at our world and find things that demonstrate the world is falling apart. That our world is not as it should be. And I don't just mean globally on the news, although that's not hard right now. But you can look at your own life. You can look at relationships that are breaking and falling apart in your life. You can look, some of you can, at your own bodies and your bodies are falling apart. They're not working the way you know they should be working. The world is falling apart. Our lives are falling apart. And what's reconciliation about? The word reconcile means to bring back together that's what's been torn asunder. And Paul says, the future 
is a world fixed, a world put to rights, a world in which everything that's being torn apart is put back together in Jesus. You see, when God made our world, it was whole. It was as it should be. So when God made our world, human beings got along. And human beings were actually safe and comfortable in their own skin. And even if you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll see that in the beginning, human beings had a perfect relationship with creation itself. The world wasn't fighting against them. Creation wasn't an enemy. And then sin comes into the world. Sin, remember selfishness. We turned our back on God. And as a result, the world starts falling apart. Relationships are torn asunder. Creation becomes difficult. Bodies break. People fight. And ultimately, we feel alienated, separated from God himself. And Paul says there's coming a day in which it's all going to be fixed. Everything is going to be brought to unity. The entire cosmos is going to be healed. The world as it should be is going to be the world that we're in. This, Paul says, is what's coming for the Christian fully in the future that you can experience right now in the present. Adoption, redemption, reconciliation. You say, well, how? How do we get these spiritual blessings? How do they come into our life? I've already given you the answer, but I'm going to now spend a few minutes unpacking it. Look with me at verse three. How do you get these spiritual blessings? In Christ. Verse four, in him. Verse six, in the one that he loves. Verse seven, in him. Verse nine, in Christ. Class, what's the answer? How do we get them? In Jesus. In Christ. The technical term that theologians and scholars use to describe this is called union with Jesus. To be a Christian, to get these spiritual blessings, is to be united to Jesus. That is to say, when you become a Christian, Jesus lives in you and you live in him. Now, that's important to say because many people subconsciously, when they think of Christianity, they don't think of it like that. When they think of what it means to follow Jesus, what lots of people reflexively think of is Jesus is a teacher or Jesus is an example, and I have to follow his teaching and obey his commands. Now, does he teach and give commands? Yes, of course. But if you think of that as everything of what a Christian is, then basically Jesus becomes your example. And your job is to do your best to live the kind of life that makes him proud. And that'll crush you. That'll absolutely crush you. Because who among us can live up to those standards? Years ago, there was a literature professor who assigned their students to read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In those passages, Jesus is laying out a description of what it looks like to follow him. Pure in heart, peacemaker, poor in spirit, someone who doesn't just lust physically, but doesn't lust in their heart, who doesn't just commit acts of violence, but isn't ever angry at other people. And so these students in the class read the Sermon on the Mount and they were asked to write an essay. What'd you think about it? And one student said, I hated it. And the teacher said, why did you hate it? And the student said, because it made me feel horrible about myself. Who can live up to that? You see, if you look to Jesus merely as a moral example or as a teacher, it'll crush you. 
But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is being in Jesus such that he's our hero. He's our champion. He's the one who's gone before us and we can obey him and we can follow his teaching because we're in him, not in our own strength. His victory is our victory. His accomplishments are for us. And if you're in him, if you trust him, if your faith is in him, his victory is your victory. His accomplishment is your accomplishment. It's not muster up your strength and fight your giant. It's I have no strength, but he did. He fought the great giant. And in him, I have the victory. This is so key, so fundamental. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a pastor in Aberdeen up in Scotland. And in 2017, he released a book called The Whole Christ. And in that, that, that's one of the books, you know, top five changed my life in understanding the gospel. And in that book, at one spot, he says this, look, if you were gonna describe a follower of Jesus, like if you were gonna use words to describe someone who follows Jesus, what word would you use? You might use the word believer. We hear that a lot here, I'm a believer, or I've been saved. You might use the term disciple. You know, it's a good one, he's a disciple. Probably you would use the word Christian. That's the most common, right? We call people Christians. In the book, Ferguson says, do you realize how infrequently any of those words are used to describe followers of Jesus? The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament and twice it's pejorative. It's making fun of followers of Jesus. But Ferguson says, do you wanna know how the New Testament most frequently describes followers of Jesus? Here's what he says. The overwhelmingly dominant way the New Testament describes followers of Jesus is that they are in Christ. That expression in one form or another occurs well over a hundred times in Paul's letters alone. He goes on to say, the blessings of the gospel are in Christ. They don't exist apart from him. They're ours only in him. They cannot be abstracted from him as if we ourselves could possess them independently of him. Christ himself is the gospel. And then a little bit later, Ferguson concludes, so if this is not the overwhelmingly dominant way in which you think about yourself, if you're a Christian, then actually you're not thinking with the renewed mind of the gospel. How do you get the spiritual blessings, adoption, redemption, reconciliation? How can you know you're safe and loved in him? Part of spiritual maturity is not confusing the benefits for the benefactor. Growing in Christ means recognizing that he is your adoption. He is your redemption. He is your reconciliation. It's him. Spiritual maturity means not coming to God merely because he's useful, but worshiping him just because he's beautiful. He's the end in himself. It's all in Christ. Now, let me just so quickly show you how this works practically. Remember the benefits, adoption, redemption, reconciliation. Think about it this way. How can you know that you're adopted? This morning, if you feel alone and isolated and cut off and broken relationships, how can you know that you're adopted? Look at Jesus. You see, Jesus was the perfect son of the father. Jesus, on the day of his baptism, as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened, if you would, 
And there was a voice from heaven, God himself saying, this is my beloved son. In him, I'm well pleased. I mean, that's the ultimate father-son relationship. That's the ultimate affirmation. I delight, I'm proud of him. And Jesus perfectly lives in obedience to God as father. Always in lockstep, always in unity. And yet, at the very end of his life, what happens? Jesus goes to the cross. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, what's happening? Even though he lived the life you should have lived, perfectly obedient to God, on the cross, he dies the death that you should have died, taking the curse upon himself. And on the cross, as Jesus dies, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only time that Jesus ever prayed and didn't call God Father. Because in that moment, he was dying for you. He was cast out so you could be accepted. Jesus was forsaken so you could be adopted. He is your adoption. He took your place so you could be in him. Think about redemption. The passage says we're redeemed, verse seven, through his blood. That's an image or a symbol of death. Sin was a debt hanging over you that you could never pay. And Jesus says, I've come to pay it for you. To pay a debt that you never could have satisfied on your own. To free you from the guilt of sin. And one day, ultimately, to free you from the very power and presence of sin. If you believe that, if you see Jesus dying, giving his life to cover your debt, what happens is it changes your life completely. Think about it this way. If you woke up tomorrow and got a letter in the mail that was legit and it said, hey, you have a debt of a billion pounds. You'd be crushed. You'd be beside yourself. You would have, and then if somebody came along and said, wow, that's a big debt. I'm gonna pay it for you. And then you found out that the way in which that person would pay that debt for you meant they had to liquidate all their assets. How would you feel about that person? You would give your whole life to them. You would feel loved infinitely and you'd say, how can I honor you? How can I serve you? How can, I, how can we be friends? How could I ever begin to repay such kindness and grace? Friends, the debt hanging over us was much more than a billion pounds and the cost to pay it was not just someone liquidating their assets. It was Jesus giving his life. And if you see that, when you say he did that for me, like this isn't just abstract stuff, he did it for me. What happens is you say, take my life, Lord. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. All for Jesus, I surrender. Because we're responding in love to such infinite grace. Or how about this, reconciliation. As I've already said, some of you right now, you're heavy because you look at your world and it's falling apart. Things are being broken and torn. You know the world's not as it should be. What does Jesus do for us? The night before his death, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you, torn for you. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the one who's gonna put everything back together, he was torn apart. He was literally ripped to shreds. For what purpose? So that in him, all things could be put back together and the world could be put to rights. And you know, one day that's gonna be true. 
One day we're gonna live in a world in which there is no more war and there is no more cancer and there is no more death and there is no more tears and there is no more breakups and there is no more disappointment and death. And along the way, the church gets to be a picture of that, of people who work for justice, who work for healing, who create friendship across difference, a community of reconciliation, a foretaste of the future. Jesus doesn't just give adoption and redemption and reconciliation. He's it. He's it. Now, finally, what are the blessings? We've seen them. How do you get them? In Jesus. Last thing I want to say as we prepare to close our sermon, if you get these blessings, or should I say, if you get Jesus, how's your life going to change? Look with me at verse three. Paul says, praise be to God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how significant that is. Paul says, praise. What's praise? When we do it every Sunday, what's praise? You know. Praise, first of all, is humility. It's saying God is worthy of worship, not me. He's the center, not me. Praise is an act of humility. Also, praise is an act of joy. I don't mean giddiness, like, ha-ha, yay, fun. But praise is a kind of deep joy that says, even amid the challenges of life, there's some truth that I can hold on to that's gonna be light crashing into my darkness. And it's gonna lift me. And don't you feel that sometimes on Sundays when you come into church, you're way down and you start praising God and you feel like, yeah, life's still hard, but, but I'm okay because I'm in him. Humility, joy, and surrender. Praise is surrender. It's effectively saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. You're in charge. Humility, joy, surrender. That's praise. And Paul says in verse three, praise be to God. And you know why that's amazing? Because when Paul's writing the book of Ephesians, do you know where he is? He's in prison. He's in prison. He's a leader in the Christian church and the Christians are being ferociously persecuted in the first century and he's dying in prison. And Paul's there and physically his life is wasting away. He's experiencing the inhumanity of a first century prison. He's lost all of his friends, his family. They're cut off, separated. They can't get to him. And ultimately, Paul knows, <laughs> I'm gonna die here. This is the end for me. And writing in that prison, Paul is applying his theology. He's thinking out the implications of what it means to be in Christ. And you know what he's saying? It might seem like I'm all alone, but I've actually found a family, a family in the church. God is my father, Jesus, my elder brother, brothers and sisters who love and are with me and are praying for me. I might seem alone, but I'm not, I'm adopted. And Paul could go on to say, I know it looks like I'm in bondage, literally shackled. But actually the ultimate shackles of selfishness, those have been broken. And yeah, I'm in prison, but I've never been more free because I'm in Christ. And the guilt of sin, it's been covered. The power of sin, it's weakening. And when I'm plunged into death, I'll be free from the very presence of sin. I've never been more free, Paul says. Redemption. And finally, he could say, yeah, the world's falling apart. My body's falling apart. Literally decaying in this prison. But I see what's coming. 
I see the future that's running full speed ahead. It's a future in which everything's gonna be put to rights, in which Jesus is gonna put everything back together. And because of that, I know that I'm okay. So Paul says, in prison, praise be. And here's what I wanna leave you with today. I know that for some of you right now, life is really hard. And for those of you who life's pretty good, just wait. It's gonna get hard. I ask you, are you in Jesus? Not like, do you know about him? Not like, do you come to church once in a while? Are you in him? Does he dwell in you? Have you given up trying to earn God's acceptance and said, I only have it in Jesus? He's my champion. He's my hero. And I'm gonna surrender everything to him today because if you do, when you do, that future starts spilling into your present. And you say, I have a family. I'm forgiven. I'm safe. And the world put to rights, that's what's coming. And I get to work for that right now. And if you have that, then no matter what you're facing, you can say, praise be. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do that now as we pray and respond. Our gracious God, as we spend now some time responding to you, responding to what we've heard, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd move, that you would lift us, that you would help us, that you would help us to so encounter Jesus in this moment, that wherever we are, whatever we're carrying, whatever is weighing us down, that we would so see Jesus living for us, dying for us, rising again on our behalf that we would see ourselves in him, safe in him, and that we would be able to say praise. No matter how hard or good, no matter how disappointed or joyful we are today, that we would be able to say praise be to you. So help us to do that right now for your glory and for our good as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.